Welcome to Canned Laser, the action movie showcase. My name is Ian, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Pete. Hey, how you doing? Today we're going to be talking about Robocop, who's one of our all-time favorite characters, uh, originating in the 1980s. But then carrying over to the 1990s, and we're going to be talking a lot about the aspects of the character, the time, and we're also going to talk about the relationship between the first, second, third movie, as well as the Frank Miller graphic novel. Exactly. Yeah, Robocop was born out of the 1980s. You know what else is born out of the 1980s, Pete? No, I don't. Cocaine. Oh. What do you know about cocaine? Actually, I um I don't know anything. But I do I mean, I do know a little bit. I know that I passed my like elementary school dare program, actually. That's about all I know. I got a t-shirt though out of it and a certificate. Does the t-shirt fit anymore? No, unfortunately, no. no. Well, what I learned about cocaine comes from the first movie RoboCop, which came out in 1987, and I finally watched on VHS by about the age of nine. And the two things I learned about cocaine from the movie were that it was produced in automated factories by people in bandanas, and secondly, that it should be snorted off of hookers. That was an important lesson. Yeah, the uh, first RoboCop is also the movie where I learned about unisex locker rooms. Very nice. I think Frank Miller really liked those. Yeah, he likes the uh, the ladies and the dudes. Seriously, though, how legendary is RoboCop? It's pretty epic. It's a phenomenon. I mean, there's a movement going on right now to erect a statue of RoboCop in Detroit. This is 23 years after the movie was released. Shout out to Dallas, though. Uh, Dallas was actually it was filmed, and uh, they should probably get the, the Ed 209 statue. That would make sense. I think that's only fair. Yeah. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, ED 209 is worth at least a dollar. Um, <laughs> it, it blew people's minds in 1987. I mean, and you have to put it in context. This was a time when you had, you know, Axel Foley was, Axel just, Foley, yeah. he was coming yeah. out of Detroit too. But even in 1987, it was a complete abandonment of what critics referred to as taste. I mean, it, it didn't create that type of movie, but RoboCop really legitimized the sort of movie that sensationalized over the top violence while making a social statement about the condition of society pertaining to, but not limited to gender roles, politics, economics, and it was actually entertaining us, you know. Exactly, yeah. It was a it was a totally new kind of action movie. I have to do this. I have to do this. Now, if that's not a social statement, I don't know what is. The critics hated it. We love it. But um, I think I think over time, though, it is, it's definitely earned the respect of many people. Absolutely. And uh, so we'll dive into the RoboCop trilogy, the three theatrical films, as well as the lesser known but equally relevant Frank Miller graphic novel. Which basically was his screenplay for RoboCop 2, and it was divided into the second and third movies, which kind of led Frank Miller to go into exile from Hollywood. He lost creative control, and he just didn't want to participate in it anymore. And I guess, um, you know, he came back recently. Robert Rodriguez got him involved with the Sin City Project and 300, and I think he actually directed The Spirit. Yeah, he was behind uh, pretty much that entire catastrophe. (laughs) So, um we're going to be talking about the 1980s. Um, that's the era that you know, RoboCop was was made. It was the era it takes place in. And we just want to give like a brief political disclaimer. We're not trying to analyze politics here or looking at, you know, is Reagan a good guy or a bad guy? We're just trying to give you some of the, you know, the background information. Why would somebody make RoboCop? 
In the 1980s, if you think of America, it's coming off a period of severe civil unrest, disillusionment. You have Vietnam War, you had Watergate, a very traumatic civil rights movement. Four um, years of Jimmy Carter. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the economy was tanking. And um, here comes Reagan, you know, trying to reboot the American dream, which is downtrodden. He's advocating uh, that it's like mourning in America, basically. Made in America. Yeah, we're going to make that mean something again. So he advocates a system known as supply-side economics. So simply put, we're just going to break this down very easily. You lower taxes so that people will invest more into the economy. And this leads to a trickle-down effect, the trickle-down economic effect, the Reaganomics. The money spent by the rich will trickle down to the poor. It will create more jobs. They will get better pay as a result of that. And then you're able to account for losing the revenue that you would get by lowering taxes because the tax base now becomes bigger because now they have better jobs with more money. There's more jobs. And there's a, there's a very deep seated movement that came out of the 1980s. that was very much against this because they did not feel that this system was benefiting them. They felt that it was a further deterioration of the American dream. Because of this, there were a, a number of reactionary movements, uh, hardcore punk, uh, for instance, the imagery of which is used throughout the RoboCop series to to show disillusioned, violent citizenry, you know, skinheads, mohawks all over the place. Urban decay was prevalent in the 1980s. For many people, it just seemed to get worse. You know, add in Reagan's war on drugs, which turned America's police force into a militarized presence on the streets, and you get a clash of values where people began to feel that they were being criminalized and devalued as the police cracked down. It's created a severe feeling of disillusionment among many people, and... Uh, not all, though. Reagan remains one of yeah, the most yeah. feared presidents. I mean, he's definitely one of the most respected, especially in today's modern um, conservative movement. Exactly. There's pluses and minuses to anybody and any policy. So if we're looking at the 80s also, let's look at some of the movies, right? So the biggest blockbusters of the day are like uh, in 82, you get E.T., which is the feel-good movie about a little boy who finds an alien friend, tries to save him from a harsh reality where you know the government is going to imprison him and experiment on him and... Um, I guess it's a story about a boy so lonely. His only friend was from space and he had to phone home or die. Yeah. Things got a little bit better in back to the future. It's where uh, a dude, Marty McFly literally gets into a time machine to escape Libyan terrorists who are threatening to kill him with an RPG. Um, he takes this time machine back to the 1950s where the primary villain is a dumb meatball who gets covered in manure. It's villainous. Rampage is stopped by an animal dung. Yeah. Yeah. So that brings us to 1982 for E.T., 85 for Back to the Future, and then finally, in 1987, RoboCop occurred. RoboCop attempted to try and take on something a little more serious, a little campy with the action, the special effects. So it was basically just a new way to make a movie, and I think it really shocked people at the time. I think even today, um, watching it is still pretty shocking. Yeah, it's sort of like in night between 1985 and 1987, the tone went from Marty McFly, you know, maybe getting at risk of being hit by some car while he's riding a skateboard to Officer Alex Murphy having his limbs shot off. So I guess we'll just delve right into RoboCop. We have a sp small background now on on you know the Reagan era of the 1980s, and I guess if I had to come up with a theme for RoboCop, my personal theme is born again hardcore. Because here's this guy, Murphy. He's a good man. He's a family man. He's a cop. He's in Detroit, which is a past symbol of American greatness. 
you know, it's the, it's the motor city. It's uh, kind of like the equivalent of the bread baskets in the Midwest of farming. It's this for industry. That's Detroit. Yeah. I, I'd say that that's pretty reasonable. Like now it's a crime ridden cesspool of urban decay, or at least, I mean, I'm not saying Detroit is that, but it's how it's portrayed in the movie in the near future. Although it's filmed in Dallas. Correct. Yeah. So really, if you're in Detroit, don't worry. They didn't show anything bad about Detroit. They're showing that Dallas is actually worse. Quite, yeah, it's hellhole. <laughs> Having never been to Dallas, I can say that with authority. Uh, basically, the government has abandoned Detroit. Um, a massive company called Omni Consumer Products, or OCP, uh, is buying up the land, evicting anyone who they'd classify as riffraff uh, to build up a new beacon of hope and a more fitting symbol of American dominance, which they've labeled Delta City. So basically a privatized replacement city for Detroit. Um, and that's their kind of like euphemism, you know, for the 1980s, like corporate America taking over public America. Right. It's like Delta change. Um, they've privatized the police. Uh, they've privatized as many of the public services as they can. They're trying to force the existing government out of play. So this is where Dick Jones, the main villain comes in. He's the vice president of OCP. He's got this ed 209 unit. It's going to replace the human element in the police force. You've insulted me. And you've insulted this company with that bastard creation of yours. I had a guaranteed military sale with ed 209 renovation program, spare parts for 25 years. Who cares if it worked or not? Oddly <laughs> enough, it was, Kind of an ongoing theme throughout the movies. In the first movie, they said that the ED-209 unit was great because that was manufactured right in America. And it didn't really matter if it worked and it didn't matter how expensive it was. So that's kind of the crux of it. In the first movie, it's the machine that's being sold in America. And because of that, it's okay, even if it doesn't work. And in RoboCop 2, the Made in America labels being attached to drugs, like hazardous narcotics. So they're, they're really making sort of a commentary there, I think, on what qualifies as being a worthwhile product and what people can take pride in. And the um, antithesis to that is this guy, Robert Morton, who is like a younger version of Dick Jones. He's up and coming. He has new ideas. And he counters the ED-209 failure with the RoboCop program. And, you know, the idea is that they can't really rely on the police force because they're people. So and they're they're against people. They're, they're for profit. But Robert Morton wants to create a more humanistic cyborg because the ED-29 is just a flat-out robot. Even though he's, he's extremely flawed, Robert Morton, he's a coke-snorting, prostitute-loving, you know, yuppie, basically, with dreams of climbing the corporate ladder. But I, I think the way the movie portrays it is that he is someone who's trying to serve the corporate agenda, but even more so than that, he's trying to serve himself within the corporation. Absolutely. Trying, to, Absolutely. trying to climb up the ladder, get to be the next most important guy. And they have little status symbols thrown in throughout the movie, like uh, the executive washroom. You've really made it once you have the, the key to get into the, the super bathroom for the super people. I think as for Robocop himself, though, and I'm, I'm going to go with, with director Paul Verhoeven of Total Recall and Showgirls fame, that Robocop is basically a Reagan-era Jesus in the sense that Murphy is martyred. He receives stigmata blasts from shotguns. The, the blasts from the shotgun kind of replace the stones of a laughing crowd. You have these criminals around him that are trying to execute him. His partner, Lewis, is actually witnessing this whole mock crucifixion, if you will, like Mary Magdalene. She's the first to recognize his resurrection. He is also pierced by a spear and walks on water, in case we miss the comparison. He has these unbreakable commandments called directives that are programmed into him. What are your prime directives? 
serve the public trust, protect the innocent, uphold the law. He can't go against that. I mean, and, and the idea is that he is going to go out now and confront the evils that are out there. The In, in the first movie, it's Boddicker, basically, who is a representation of that. Yeah, it's a moral foundation. Yeah. It's rules you cannot break and that all actions must be judged against. And I think because it's a Reagan era Jesus, he has to be extremely hardcore because at this time in America, I mean, you think about it, this is the era of, you know, intense military buildup. We're at the height of the Cold War. Our military budget exploded. It was like 40% high or something crazy, like the biggest peacetime military buildup in our, in our history anyway. We basically forced the USSR into a spending contest that just like crippled them. Right. It's peace through strength. And RoboCop is, you know, a personification yeah. of that. The peace through strength doctrine that I don't think Reagan came up with it, but he espoused that. There's a lot of references throughout the movie to the military buildup and the, the relevance of that to the 1980s. Yeah, the, the continual violence is a, a, a big indicator of what they were going for there. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, Robocop is searching for the man that was lost. I mean, he's aware that he, of his directives, but the, the man Murphy is kind of like, is, is also, it's also like finding the man in the machine is also a common theme through all three movies. Right. And I think it's important just to tie it together all in one place. I, I mean, I understand the most folks have seen this movie or at least get it, but Robocop was Alex Murphy. He is violently murdered, and then the company resuscitates him to a degree and then resurrects him into this cybernetic body, which is RoboCop. And one of the main pivot points of the story through all of these movies and all of its incarnations is this conflict between Murphy's you know, robotic self, a computer programmed to do the bidding of, uh, on the surface, the law, but in reality is corporate creators, and also the mind and the emotions and the feelings of Alex Murphy, who is a major part of this. I mean, he, he still has the face of Alex Murphy, and that's that's a big part of it. And at the end of the movie, he basically has to come to terms with the fact that he's lost his family, but he can still go out and fight this war that is going on, this war between corporate criminals and criminals on the street, violent criminals who are you know hurting a lot of people, destroying society in general. At the end of the movie, his last words are, call me Murphy, because he's realized he's found the man, so to speak. Within the machine. That brings us to RoboCop 2, which uh, was the follow-up to the 1987 RoboCop. Uh, RoboCop 2 came out in 1990, and sort of a slight shift in perspective. If the first RoboCop was about a, a super conservative point of view gone awry, then RoboCop 2 deals with the problems that you run into with ultra-liberalism running amok. On the international scene, the Amazon nuclear power facility has blown its stack, irradiating the world's largest rainforest. Environmentalists call it a disaster. But don't they always? And the main villain in RoboCop 2 is named Kane. He's a narco-terrorist who he fashions himself to be a, a prophet of sorts. Jesus had days like this, hounded and attacked like a criminal. But like him... I don't blame you. They program you, and you do it. So if we're looking at the, you know, from the original perspective, you know, RoboCop is like the ultra conservative. So this is like a complete departure. And he is a proponent of this drug called Nuke, which I guess he created, or at least he's, he's altering it because he's trying to make a designer drug that can fit anyone's taste. And, his, his idea is that it's kind of an egalitarian idea where 
if they legalize drugs, they thereby will reduce crime. They will give the people what they want, which is paradise in, in his own words. The people want paradise. And they will have it. And he will functionally put an end to this drug war that's going on. I mean, aside from the fact he, he's not even taking into account that the people are broke and, and they, can't, um, they can't even afford basic necessities. So, yeah, Cain is he's a one-issue guy. He's extremely zealous, but he believes, and I think it's, it's pretty clearly demonstrated in the movie, that he genuinely believes that if nuke is distributed equally, it will reduce social problems. People will be employed even by the yeah, process yeah, of exactly. making nuke. That's exactly. one of the, the arguments made in the movie. So, I mean, obviously he's a little bit delusional about this. But, but yet that's a that's that's a that's definitely something today that we hear a lot about, like legalizing drugs and and making it, um, you know, so that these criminals cannot hold people hostage, basically, to their criminal enterprise. Right. The, and plus make money off of it, too. It's not I mean, that's the real thing, I guess, the tax money. Yeah, that's definitely a consideration there. He's basically he's as ruthless as OCP and and eventually becomes one of their employees. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Uh, OCP eventually at one point has the opportunity to reprogram the original RoboCop to, to give Murphy a new set of directives. And the way they come up with this list of directives is very telling. They have a, a pop psychologist come in and figure out, you know, what's wrong with, with RoboCop psychologically. Why is he so antisocial? Why is he a, basically, why is he a public relations nightmare? Yeah, one of the things that comes up in this this focus group is that RoboCop always shoots his gun first, and he never takes time to yeah, you yeah. know go on a camping trip with Cub Scouts or help a cat out of a tree. Uh, their solution to which are their main concerns in a city that is literally being ripped apart exactly by people with machine guns. Right. So you have a bunch of you know moral majority folks come in and say that RoboCop needs to be friendlier. Okay. What they do to make RoboCop friendlier is give him literally hundreds of directives. Now, just like his serve the public trust, uphold the law, all those directives, he is bound by his program to adhere to these. And when there are so many of them, it makes it very difficult for him to function. And they're ridiculous. I mean, the they want to like comment people on like how nice they look and uh, doing all these kind of like public good. I mean, it's, it, they're like nice, but it's to the point where people are shooting at him. He can't pull out his gun. And meanwhile, there's a dude smoking and he shoots the cigarette out of the guy's mouth. It's like a disproportionate reaction to certain occurrences. Right. RoboCop essentially becomes very morally relativistic. He was very fixed in his morality initially. He had right and wrong. That was it. The law was the the determinant of whether or not what he was doing was right or wrong. You. You want me? Dead or alive. One of us must die. Dead, dead. He went from being like the ultimate ass kicker to like a guy who can't, he can't do anything basically. He's totally impotent. Right. His directives are so contradictory and so numerous that he's unable to take decisive action against anyone, really. Everybody's doing something right because he perceives yeah. it to be acceptable on some level. Well, eventually Kane is, is mortally wounded and he is actually the person who, who becomes the new RoboCop, RoboCop 2. He is the new version, um, the mentality being that he can be um, 
controlled because of his addiction to nuke. And also that the fact that he's ruthless enough that OCP was, could send him on any mission without any consideration for him uh, having a problem doing the type of the type of work that they're doing, which is evicting people and kicking them out of their homes. Yeah, precisely. I think that uh, OCP at the end of the movie is discredited, though. I mean, they they suffer the result of this pain based RoboCop two kind of. Yeah, they have the ultimate out. showdown, and it's awesome. And yeah, robots are flying from falling from the sky, and yeah, so that doesn't really quite work out for them. But there's a, a pretty good uh, reason for that, and I think it's the the poor choices made with the uh, the replacement brain there in Kane. So then that brings us to RoboCop 3, which I guess we could say was almost a movie. I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, I would go out on a limb and say you probably couldn't pay me enough to like this movie. <laughs> I once said, I think it has things about it that we like. Yeah, I, there are little nuggets of value in this. You can see how a good movie could have emerged. Yeah, but and basically this is the remnants of Frank Miller's script. Absolutely. Most of the stuff is thrown into two. Kind of what was discarded is put into the third movie and you and I've talked, talked about this a lot over the years, like how we feel maybe that RoboCop three is kind of like the trajectory of the first movie. Yes. Where in that OCP becomes a much more central yeah. enemy, uh, not only an enemy to RoboCop, but more importantly, an enemy to the people of Detroit who for the first time in the series are no longer just a, a caricature either, you know, a, yeah, a drug yeah. addict or that's a the biggest person. change. I think, yeah, it's, Deals a lot more with people on the ground, the plight of the residents in Detroit who are being affected by this corporate changeover to Delta yeah. City. And then they, like OCP, well at this point, in the third movie we should point out, which is a, is a departure from the, the Frank Miller material, is that OCP has been bought out by an international corporation from Japan. Kind of Mitsu. So Japan, and this shows you how dated the movie is, is our, you know, portrayed as our mortal enemy with their... Very nice consumer electronics and cheap, affordable, fuel-efficient cars. Right. And they're ninja cyborgs. Oh, yeah. If if this movie were made today, to put this part of the movie up to date, I'm pretty confident that the takeover company would have probably been Chinese. Yeah. But they obviously didn't see that back then. No. They saw nothing. (laughs) So the plot, I guess, can be summed up with, um, you know, OCP hires a group of mercenaries called rehabilitation concepts. And I mean, they market them as like heroes. They have action figures and they're like these awesome guys, but really they're just evicting people from their houses while the bulldozers and the wrecking balls come through and knock them down as quickly as they can get them out. Yeah. The one thing that happens here that kind of throws RoboCop over the edge is that his partner and Lewis is killed while in the process of trying to predict some of the residents of Detroit as the rehabs come through and round them up in a very Gestapo sort of fashion. Oh, yeah. And RoboCop is blamed for this murder, which is part of the reason why he has to go rogue and he's, you know, separated from everybody for long periods of time in the movie. As well as the fact, I think, at this point, the police are still on strike. So there is no force out there combating the um, the rehabilitation concepts, except for the citizen group that arises which is basically, I guess, a guerrilla unit, I guess is the best you could say. They really have no resources at all, but they're trying to take back what's left of their city. Right, and by the end of the movie... Which I thought was a nice uh, touch. I think that's the one nice touch in this movie. Yeah, you can you can really see where this movie could have taken off. It's just the execution is not there. The, the character and the charm of the earlier movies is not good. The pacing is off. And I think one thing that really ruins it for me is that the PG-13 rating and the attempt to give it a... 
a mass market and yeah. a younger market, yeah. you know, an action figure market, that undercut it because you couldn't have the super violence. You couldn't have cursing. You couldn't, you couldn't make the movie in, into that sort of caricature of reality that the first two were. It became an actual cartoon. It wasn't. Yeah, they lost all sense of um, proportion, I guess. I mean, there was points where Robocop is shooting a hole through a door or through the roof of his car where he could just punch. I mean, he's like a cartoon. He's shooting a hole like with the bullets in a circle, and, and he drives a pink Cadillac at one point. And it's, you know, it's funny. Robocop's driving a pink Cadillac. Ha, ha. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's like... And um, it's an embarrassment. Yeah, it's pretty much. Although you and I disagree about the jetpack. Yeah, I don't like the jetpack. Yeah. I, I, I don't know, man. Robocop flying. Just I, I'm, I'm kind of sold on that. It doesn't work for me. <laughs> to me, it just looks like someone was attempting to make a toy, and they went to the producers and said, "Put this in the movie," and they said, "Okay, we'll make a puppet and put it in front of a green screen and have it shoot a laser." It looked real. Laser guided. I really believe that Robocop was flying. I saw him waving, you know, as all of these... He had one missile, right? Yeah, essentially. He flew over as the police and the citizens group are making a a unified stand against the rehabs and being slaughtered. Robocop flies over, fires one missile, waves with his machine gun arm, and then flies away. And that's the scene in the movie, I think, not the flying part, but before that, where the sergeant basically unified... He deputizes everyone, the whole citizenry. They go up against the rehabs. And are fighting basically for their freedom. Robocop is not even there at that point. He's too busy fighting cyborg ninjas in some control center somewhere. Yeah, that's another piece of evidence that this movie was suffering from <laughs> a a lack of coherence and I think more importantly a lack of budget. I'd buy that for a dollar. Sorry, I just love that too much. That's okay. I think at this point you probably could have purchased Orion, the movie studio, for a dollar. <laughs> I think somebody probably did. But uh, at that point, they needed a hit. They needed money. They needed something to keep them going, which partially explains the PG-13 rating. You know, get it in more theaters, get it in more, more people yeah, yeah, and more seats. Yeah. I think that brings us to the Frank Miller thing, though, because Frank Miller's vision, the rehabs are these mercenary force, right? They're bloodthirsty killers. Now, there's a couple of differences that we need to point out. I mean, the Robocop 2 actually was one of the rehabs in Frank Miller's version. You know, he's a merc- He's he's actually doesn't have a character at all. He's just like an insane blood on his face guy running around, like creating mayhem. Yeah, as far as I can tell, <laughs> the only things that he does are say no pain, no gain and draw little crucifixes on his forehead <laughs> okay, out okay. of blood. It was pretty, yeah, that was obscene. Now the psychiatrist um, or psychologist character is, is they actually have different names. Like it's Margaret Love and Frank Miller's version and Dr. Fox and the movie version. And they're just, they're, they have a similar trait in that they're, they're kind of like these liberal anti-violence pro-child empowerment activists who go to work for uh, OCP. And I think this is where you inherently find that flaw of um, they don't, you know, they're not meeting the criteria that they set out They're They're supposed to be like promoting a positive role model. And yet both of these psychologists find people who are seemingly anti everything they're against, they're for. Right. They, they go out with the concept that they need a very specific set of characteristics for a brain to accept being put into this cyborg body. And they use Alex Murphy, the first RoboCop, the success, the one success as uh, basically the baseline for this. I think the Frank Miller version suffered way more. It definitely did. Yes, at least in the movie, they kind of gloss over this little logic flaw by saying we have Kane, he's on drugs, we can control him yeah. by modulating his drug supply. So he does what we say or no nuke for Kane. Yeah. And he actually can think 
He's actually like a smart guy. I mean, you might agree with what he's saying, but he, he had like a criminal enterprise. He's the equivalent of the street gang to OCP in the office building. You know what I mean? Right. One thing I just uh, just thought up, which may be relevant, is that at no point in either the RoboCop 2 movie nor in the graphic novel do you see any indication that Kane has directives or that That's true. the RoboCop that. 2 yeah. machine has directives at any point. Which seems very strange and a little bit contradictory, especially in the case of the movie, where there are so many directives given to RoboCop to fix him. Yeah, that was a good—I thought that was a pretty good plot device, actually. That, mm-hmm. And I think the frame-up was the other thing that made no sense to me in Frank Miller's version, which was, you know, the frame-up. It was like an afterthought, almost. Whereas in the third movie, the the assassination of Lewis is a much more important plot point, I think. It's way more moving and— you yes. probably couldn't afford her to be in the rest of the movie anyway, but at Nancy Allen. At that rate, you know, uh I think they got every penny's worth out of that. But Absolutely. um the second I guess the other thing I want to bring up is the the, the character of Doctor um or Margaret Love in, in Frank Miller, like the overt sexuality. I think that in general killed Frank Miller's um story. Like it's just so I mean, we all, you know, guys, yeah, we love boobs and asses and yeah, it's great, but it really had no point in this movie the very from the very first movie we were like the unisex locker room that you brought up earlier it was deliberately it was an egalitarian like it was a statement saying that you know this is an equal environment right and then in the graphic novel in the ha- the last half of the book essentially is Anne lewis running around single-handedly trying to defeat these mercenary rehabs and in every frame, a little bit more of her clothing yeah. gets burned off or shot off yeah. or torn off. So eventually she's just running around in a sports bra and a thong. Yeah, know, I mean. Shooting it, people. And that's the really the like, I think that was the last thing that they were trying to accomplish in the first movie. So I, I didn't I didn't really see that. It looked great on paper, I guess. Like, I guess who want, everybody wants to see Lewis naked. But we didn't even get that. We just got the PG-13, I guess you could say, yeah. version of that as well. Definitely. Said no. Huh? Maybe you have a hearing problem. <laughs> um, I think in the final analysis, uh, we can agree that we both like RoboCop 2. I mean, RoboCop, yeah, I think the Robocop first one, two, for yeah, sure. Um, three really could have been made better. Um, Had a couple redeeming points. I know we disagree on the jetpack, but I think yeah. the unifying like of the people was shown in a very positive way, and it, it also helped kind of flesh out the character of RoboCop from the first movie where he was kind of struggling with his identity in RoboCop because he's still Murphy. He's trying to find Murphy. And by RoboCop 3, he has accepted his role as RoboCop and the job and what it means to protecting the people. But then to have the people rise up to meet him, I thought that was actually a really good a really good device in um, in the third movie. Like they, it was, It's probably the best part about that movie. It ended, there is a best part about it, that movie. It ended on a positive note, yeah. I think. With Japan joining forces with <laughs> the poor people in Detroit to take it back, I guess. I think that was the message, if there was a message. And Frank Miller, uh, I like Frank Miller, but I, I'm I'm kind of glad, though, that we got RoboCop 2 out of that. Yes, out of the three, RoboCop 2 the movie, RoboCop 3 the movie, and Frank Miller's RoboCop, I personally think one of them is any good, and that's RoboCop 2, which is pretty awesome. The other two, very hit or miss. Yeah, and I think... I got to give props to Frank Miller, though, because he he tried something and I mean, it didn't necessarily 
I think, hit on all cylinders. But the, the concepts he came up with, and, and they're evident, I think, in two and three that were good. I think, you know, they were able at least to hold on to what was really good about it. I think really the only thing they dumped was the overt sexuality. And they made RoboCop 2 the actual, like, reason for it a little clearer, I think. Yeah. Now that brings us to the legacy of RoboCop, and we could describe this as a slightly tarnished gem. Yeah, it's sad, but, I mean, the quality of RoboCop 3, I think, just threw the whole thing into, like, the toilet, basically. And we can mention some other interpretations here just briefly. There was an animated series, which wasn't very good. Yeah, check it on YouTube. You'll, yeah. be, you'll be lightly entertained. There was a 1994 single, series, single season run of a RoboCop TV series in syndication, which you know obviously toned down the violence and had no cursing and no nudity, but it was surprisingly good. So you can check that one out, too, if you can find it online somewhere or whatever. Uh, finally, there was the RoboCop Prime Directive series. It was <laughs> yeah. just a... Sort of miniseries, sort of reboot, which occurred in the, I think, late 90s. Yeah, they were really trying to, like, recapture the the old glory. Yeah, and if you want to see any evidence of just how hard Peter Weller worked to walk properly in that RoboCop suit, take a look at some of the scenes with the RoboCop in Prime Directives. You can, especially from behind, you can see just the way all of the different pieces. Yeah, I mean, Peter Weller took, like, mind classes and and all this. He was really gung-ho about making the character look real because i think in essence i mean if it's just a dude in a robot suit it could the possibility for disaster is just it's off the chart yeah and the disaster occurred in the prime directives movie (laughs) where they have they literally they have two robocops but because they're played by different actors of different heights the robocops are different heights and builds which makes no sense that's probably enough about that uh but what's good about robocop all right we got the action tremendous action yes violence like we've never seen before Juxtapose that with the comedic satire and the social commentary, if you want it. Some people don't want it. I guess if you like Reagan, you don't want it. Maybe not. I can feel them. But I can't remember them. Jimmy you, you Carter? Might, you might enjoy the part about the <laughs> environmentalists, though. Yeah, yeah. Oh, today I think RoboCop 2 will go over really well because that was such like a, it really painted liberals like just the worst pieces of scum on the earth. I don't think it's pretentious, though. No, definitely I mean, it could not. be a popcorn movie, but I don't, I don't really find it to be overtly in your face on any level. Well, it's, it's a movie about a robot police officer. Yeah. And it, it knows <laughs> Which that. should scare us to death, but it really... Right. Yeah. It, they f- have a very fine line that they manage to tread throughout most of the series where it is neither as ridiculous as it sounds nor as terrifying as it could be. Yeah. So that's... And we watch the evolution good. of the man in the suit. He lost his family. You know, we feel for the guy. We really do. I think Peter Weller really, without him, I don't think, I really don't think this would have worked at all. No, uh, I would agree with that completely. I think he did a fantastic job. And if you if you look at even like Buckaroo Banzai. Or, yeah. uh, what was or, the one with the rats? I love that. Oh, of, on, of, of Unknown, unknown Origin. Origin. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Peter Weller, just A+. Plus I guess that brings us to the remake the then, because if they make, if they remake, the reboot remake RoboCop, who's going to play RoboCop? Well, you have some choices. I mean, Jason Statham, Nick Cage. As much as I enjoy both of those actors, I don't think either one could do RoboCop. Yeah, yeah, Statham's just a little bit too... I think Nick Cage has the face. Nick Cage could do it. I think he can do anything. (laughs) As long as it involves either... His hair is already like RoboCop. Yeah, if he's like a being of vengeance, you know, like a a (laughs) drive-angry character or Ghost Rider or some sort of a magician. Or oh, a magician. Yeah. Yeah. He's done that a lot recently, too. So he's coming from hell and he's a magician all the time. That's... So would we like a remake? 
I don't think I would. I don't I, think I would I think either. the first movie works on its own. It's um, too locked into that time period, too. I mean, it's, it is. it's I mean, such an 80s movie, yeah. even though 2 is in the 90s and right. 3 it, was somewhere. Yeah, the movie always states it's in the near future, but it's very obviously talking about the 80s and set in the 80s. And it uses 1980s vintage effects, you know, stop motion, a lot of yeah, models, a lot yeah. of practical stuff. It's excellent makeup, especially in the first movie where you see Murphy's face kind of plastered onto the yeah, robot. That, yeah, that definitely went down as the, as the series, like the, the actual quality of the effects, I think. Yes, for sure. Although two had great effects. I really, I personally don't feel that having a computer generated perfectly yeah, late ED-209 yeah. would make anything better. I think it would just give you options to make the movie worse. Yeah, I think also the, the amount of time they put into creating, like even like the, the ED-209, it was just like the, the mannerisms, it was like a child, it, it was like wobbly. You know, they, they really took the time to add these little nuances to it. I mean, they could probably make a good movie out of it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, sure. it could be entertaining at the very least, but I don't think it's going to have the social impact. I just, I just don't, I don't really see the reason to remake it. It's just so good at this point. And I have a sneaking and it's fairly recent. I think exactly. I don't think it would would stand up very well. I mean, you could have a few actors who could pull it off. People who are you know slender enough, like uh, you know Christian Bale and sort of his yeah, I'm sure mode yeah. or he'll lose all his weight like he did in The Machinist and go insane. Yeah. Uh, one thing I thought of is, could you just have Peter Weller do it again? I mean, yeah, right. You probably <laughs> yeah. could, which would be awesome. Or they can go the CG Peter Weller out, like they did with the CG Jeff Bridges and Tron. Yeah, <laughs> it could happen. They would do that. Yeah, I would. I would watch that. Yeah. <laughs> would well, that be better than having a real person? Perhaps. Oh god, well, let's that, just do an animated Robocop call it a day. Yeah. Well, let Peter Weller do the voice. I, I'd watch that. Yeah, I'd watch that. Well, that brings us to our uh, our wrap up, and what we're going to do now is take a listener question because we have listeners. We do, yeah, literally several of them. This and thank one, you for listening. Yes, yes, we appreciate that very much. If you are still listening, thirty seven minutes into this, uh, this question comes from Jim in upstate New York. I think he lives around somewhere uh, in Binghamton. Around I think. Binghamton, yeah, yeah. It's up there. Um, this one, Southern Tier. It's a, a cyborg warrior roundup. Jim wants to know what we think are the pros and cons in a comparison of fighting abilities of man-machine hybrids. Uh, the three examples he gives us to start off with are the T-800 Terminator, basically the, the Schwarzenegger model, uh, RoboCop, who we've been talking about, and Mandroid from a little-known movie called The Eliminators. Little-known, but a lot of awesome. Yeah, it, it sure is. Basically, he wants us to know who would win in a fight. And this is a loaded question. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm torn on this one. I, I think I have to go T-800 only because they only have one directive, which is kill. Yeah, and I think I think I agree with you. I mean, I have a very, very great love for RoboCop, but I do think that RoboCop and a T-800... I mean, can RoboCop even walk upstairs? Has this been established? He can walk downstairs. That's how he be, be to Ed 209. Okay. I don't know about up. Up, yeah. I think they cut that out on purpose. We should probably deal with Mandroid because we have three, Mandroid, three contestants here. Yeah, he has um, tank treads. He does. does Mandroid that has hinder like, him or help him. I don't. I don't know. I think it could help him if he was trying to escape. But we're assuming you know straight up fight. I think escaping might even be worse on the treads because he's just going so slow that I mean I think at that speed RoboCop could even catch up with him. Maybe that's RoboCop's main disadvantage here. Not and plus, fast. I'm pretty sure that movie was made in either Canada or Australia, so I don't think those were you know American quality parts. Probably not. RoboCop is definitely built like Ford Tough. Yeah, I'd have to rank this one T-800 for the win. RoboCop, uh, honorable mention, and Mandroid, no no chance at all. Mandroid, I'm sorry, bro. You got to, I don't know, go back to the lab or something. Yeah. 
So I guess that's it. Yeah. That brings us to the end. Thanks a lot, guys. Absolutely. Had a good time. Yep. Thanks. Who are you and who are you working for? I'm Alyssa Braun. Who do you think I am? I'm hot, I'm tired, I'm hungry, and I'm thirsty, and I've been walking around in these high heels all day, and I have blisters on my feet. And quit asking me such stupid questions, all right? And let me tell you something else, Buster. You're not my idea of a dream date. Asshole! That's Mr. Asshole to you. In the violence of the night Where you hear the siren scream He only knows where he is going to There's like a dream within a dream His heart beats like a hammer Like the back feet of a song And the fire burns within him And he knows